and welcome to Adjusted. I'm your host, Greg Hamlin, coming at you from beautiful Birmingham, Alabama, and Berkeley Industrial Comp. And with me is my co-host for today, Matt Yaling, Director of Claims at MEC. Matt, you could say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Yaling from Midwest Employers Casualty, joining you from St. Louis, Missouri, along the banks of the big, muddy Mississippi. Always glad to have Matt with us. And I always like to pull him into these type of riveting topics that we have today, which is Medicare set-asides. While my company has some experience with it, Matt's operating unit focuses on excess insurance. So they see a lot of these. So I thought he would be a good teammate today as we bring in our special guest, Daniel Anders, Chief Compliance Officer at Towers MSA Partners. Dan, if you could say hi to everybody. Sure. Hello from the uh, northern suburbs of Chicago, where I am. Excellent. I grew up in Indianapolis, so not too far. So yeah. ma- many weekends in Chicago growing right up. I-65. That's right. That's right. In fact, we lived in Lebanon uh, in, on the way uh, to Lafayette for a while. So, oh, very uh, nice. Spent a lot of time on 65. Yeah, the, the last time I drove down I-65, uh, we were going to North Carolina and we saw about, I haven't seen many burning cars, but there were three burning cars uh, along the entire route in separate incidents <laughs> throughout Oh my Indiana. gosh. Well, you know, it, I love my Hoosier state, but it sounds, like, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it was a bad week. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so Dan, how did you end up in compliance and in the insurance industry? I'm sure in first grade, when you had career day, you showed up as a compliance officer at your uh, show and tell. Is that right? Uh, exactly. Exactly. I, I had my little junior work comp claim with me and <laughs> all dressed up and, and ready to go. Um, so no, like, like many, it was an unpredicted, uh, unpredicted path for me. I'm an attorney and uh, from an early age, uh, I, I did uh, think I eventually become uh, an attorney. So that did uh, eventually lead me on, on that path. But um, I would say that the the path to work comp uh, was interesting. If you want me to expand on that, yeah. So how did you? So I assume you went to law school somewhere. Was it in the Chicago area? Yeah. So after I graduated from college, I actually worked on a political campaign and thought my future would probably be in more politics and government, and worked on the the reelection campaign of Jim Ryan, who was the attorney general. In Illinois, and this goes back to what, uh, what 1998, and uh, stayed on there as a once he was reelected public information officer. So actually, was in the press office there, and was a, a spokesman for the attorney general's office on you know, all sorts of matters, which was cool. You got to meet reporters and go out to events and you know represent uh, the office, and that was fun. So uh, I went to law school at night uh, for four years uh, while I worked at the attorney general's office. And then he decided to run for governor in 2002. He ran against, probably know, the infamous Rod Blagojevich, tried to oh, sell, yeah. sell uh, Barack Obama's Senate seat. Well, unfortunately, he did not defeat Rod Blagojevich, and Blagojevich was uh, elected governor. So at that point, uh, I was graduating from law school. I didn't have a job because uh, he was leaving office. And a friend of mine at a uh, defense firm in Chicago that did work comp and liability uh, matters reached out to me and said, well, you know, why don't you apply? And I uh, actually applied concurrently with 
the state's attorney's office there and actually wanted to stay in government and thought I'd, I'd go in that direction. But I also applied at this law firm. I took the, the bar exam and contacted the state's attorney's office. And they said, well, you know, we don't look at hiring until we know you pass the bar and probably would be November or later. And the law firm contacted me and said, uh, well, we'll hire you today and bring you in. Well, uh, I have I have loans. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. those, are, those need to be paid. So I started at uh, the firm in Chicago and uh, and did work comp, which meant, you know, obviously they don't teach that in law school, uh, or at least I don't recall them having a work comp <laughs> class. Uh, <laughs> right, so I right. uh, got the fast course on workers' compensation uh, at the law firm there. And that's essentially how I ended up in, in doing this uh, line of work. Once you get in, you never get out. No, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's uh, and here I am today. I know time goes quickly too. Tell us a little bit about your company, Tower MSA Partners. Sure. So, you know, no offense to, to big corporations, but uh, you know, I love entrepreneurs and uh, Rita Wilson and, and Christine uh, Dudley going in 11 years now, uh, started a Tower MSA. And Rita had reached out to me, you know, when was that, uh, 2016 now, and I had been at ExamWorks at that time. And, you know, to talk about what they were doing at Tower uh, and immensely impressed just with, you know, even when they started the company in 2011, it was a fairly mature market with Medicare set-asides, Medicare secondary payer companies. But Rita, who has a pharmacy benefit management background and uh, really introducing technology, looked at MSAs and said, well, you know, this is a really still paper-intensive, labor-intensive process. Is there a way to insert some technology in here and really just laser focus on Medicare set-aside work? And that's, you know, that's essentially what she did in, in terms of putting a company together that Look at a process that would tie everything together in you know the Medicare secondary payer process, and you know we talk about Medicare set asides, but today it's Medicare conditional payments. It's Section 111 reporting. Now, when I started doing this back in 2003, it was essentially Medicare set asides, but now all of this is is really tied together. Um, so, uh, getting back to Tower, you know. What uh, was put together here and what Rita and Christy put together is a company that really looks at mitigating you know, the problems that are seen with Medicare set-asides, often seen and claimed as, as too high MSAs or difficulties getting those MSAs approved by CMS is uh, engaging in that process uh, and making it much easier for our clients in terms of including a Medicare set aside within settlement of their case, you know, not to you know, do taglines here, but you know, that's really how we look at this uh, is, is really kind of care costs and compliance. You know, one, you know, certainly looking at ensuring that that Medicare beneficiary injured worker has the, the care that they need, but also looking at that in, in terms of cost. You know uh, what we can do to mitigate costs. You know, certainly making sure that person still has the care they need. But you know, are there alternatives? Are there 
uh, are there treatments and medications that just aren't needed anymore? You know, and can that be clarified? Um, and then making sure that ultimately what we do is compliant with the expectations that Medicare has. You know, we tend to be more of a pro-submission company uh, as uh, opposed to others uh, that have gone more uh, along the non-submit route. That's you know essentially a whole nother uh, topic. Well, I think what you guys do is fantastic. We've worked with you guys in the past and have had excellent results because I know some of our guests probably know a lot of this information and others know next to nothing. I know one of our for sure audience members is my mom who probably doesn't know anything about about Medicare. So I thought let's go back to the beginning maybe and just explain for somebody who either has had never had exposure to this or has very little exposure to this, what is the purpose of a Medicare set-aside? So why, why, did, why do we need one and what's the purpose of that? Yeah, this is, this is what I have to give when we, my wife and I meet somebody socially and they say, what do you do for a living? Right, <laughs> and my, right, right. And my wife turns to me and say, you know, can you tell them you're an astronaut or something? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so uh, no, and I was talking to some of my colleagues the other day, I was at a conference and uh, we were all talking about, does your mom understand what you do or your what my colleague was saying, well, I think my brother understands, but my kids don't. <laughs> so so I, I tend to, when I lay this out to somebody is, you know, most people understand what, what Medicare is and providing health benefits for, you know, 65 or older, less people know it's also there for people that meet uh, disability requirements. Also, some people have some understanding of workers' compensation, you're injured on the job, that your employer will assist you with providing benefits and cover your care. And then try to tie those two together and say, well, okay, at some point, if you have a workers' compensation claim, um, you may settle your case. If you're somebody that is on Medicare, close to to being on Medicare, the government doesn't want to get stuck with the bill for your medical. Um, So if you need a knee replacement down the road, if you need a surgery, if you're on some medications, the government doesn't want to get stuck with the bill. And you as a taxpayer should say, well, that makes sense. I, I, why should tax money go to something where there's a, another entity out there that being you know, a workers' compensation insurance company or you know, the, the employer that you work for that can pay for it? So essentially, uh, what Medicare says is, all right, Take some of those settlement monies um, and utilize those for future medical care. So what we do then is review that person's that injured worker's medical records, their pharmacy information, and determine what they will likely need over their lifetime and calculate that all out and come back with a dollar amount uh, that is allocated as part of that settlement. So it could be 10, 15, 20, $100,000, depending on the case, but that money is there to pay for that person's future medical. So the government doesn't have to pay for it. The whole process of the MSA, there's a lot of confusion around it. I mean, in this, is there an easy way or a simple way to answer the question of when do you need an MSA? Yeah, I think... First one is you need a settlement. You know, if you don't, if you're not going to settle, and when I say settlement, settlement that's going to close out medical. If you don't have that, you don't need an MSA. 
So I need to start with that. If you have an injured worker that's looking to settlement, it might be open to it. Then you also need him or her to have some stability within their medical care. Frankly, sometimes we'll get a referral for an MSA for somebody that essentially just came out of surgery. (laughs) Well, that's a tough one because As you know, usually someone that's just had a surgery is going to have increased medication use. They maybe have more frequent physician visits, more physical therapy than they're really going to need over their lifetime. So, and Medicare says this themselves, you know, they're looking at an MSA for somebody who's, you know, MMI, where their care has leveled off because what they will do is essentially lock in place treatment medications that are occurring for that person's life expectancy. Now, the reality is even somebody whose care is stable, things will change over lifetime. But for Medicare purposes, when they review it, the way they've developed their process is, well, we're just going to, for the most part, lock in that care. So the right time is settlement and have somebody whose care has has stabilized such that that gives an accurate, as best as possible, prediction of what future medical care will look like. So a follow-up to that. So that's when an MSA is needed. We've mentioned CMS or the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, and you mentioned earlier the approval process and I don't want to get bogged down in all the, the minutia of everything, but when should that MSA be submitted to CMS or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services? Yeah. Well, first of all, you face the question, uh, it's a voluntary review process. So you may decide, even if you can submit it, that you're not going to. And people fall on various sides of when to do that or whether to do it. And um, I won't get into all the minutia. That right now, but you have a you have a choice there uh, as to whether to submit or non-submit uh, the MSA. Medicare only allows you to submit if you meet a certain criteria. So you have to either be a or have an injured worker that's a Medicare beneficiary and a total settlement that exceeds twenty five thousand dollars, or you have a someone that has a reasonable expectation of Medicare eligibility within thirty months and the total settlement exceeds two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So if you meet any of those, either of those, I should say, criteria, then you can submit the MSA. So that that gives you thresholds. There's there's still a timing element here as to when to submit. And I'd say, again, getting back to making sure that medical care has leveled off, but also that you've addressed you know any cost drivers on the MSA, any loose ends. Um, you know, at Tower, half of our MSAs receive what we call physician follow-up service. So, you know, essentially a free service from us because what we've saw uh, and we've developed this over the years is we'll get these in and at no no fault of the adjuster because they look at these differently than we do when it comes to what Medicare wants. But we'll look at the records and there seem to be medications listed there that that injured worker is no longer on. There's, say, a surgery that was mentioned 18 months ago that is no longer seems to be a recommendation. Well, if those are in the MSA, it could be you know, an excessive amount in the allocation. So what we recommend to our client and then usually go back to is treating physician, get them to sign off. And it could be a simple statement that, that you know, 
a spinal cord stimulator, stimulator is no longer an option. You know, these two medications are active. These two have been discontinued. And that not only mitigates the MSA, but it also makes sure that we can get the MSA approved quickly. You know, typically, right, it takes two weeks to get an MSA approved by Medicare. And I date back to days where it took six to eight months uh, to get one of those approved. So, I mean, it's compliments to to Medicare for bettering that process. But if you don't have all the I's, you know, I's dotted, T's crossed, then Medicare come back and they'll say, well, we need a pharmacy history. We need treatment records. We need clarification. And then that drags the process out. You made some good points there on making sure that the right information is provided. And I think we hear that all the time, garbage in, garbage out. And, you know, if we don't give the right information to explain what the treatment is, then we're going to get things that aren't actually accurate for their future allocation. So it's really important, I think, what you were talking about to make sure that, okay, if there are medications listed or treatments discussed, and then we know that's changed, but we're not giving them the information that it's changed, then we're probably going to be surprised on what they're recommending for this person's lifetime care. Yeah, I, I used to joke with people. I'd say, well, I can do an MSA if a doctor writes something on a napkin, but it's probably not going to be a good MSA. Right, right. So another element to MSAs that I know gets discussed a lot, and I don't know if everybody understands it, is rated ages. And mm-hmm. so I thought it would be good to just explain what is a rated age and how do they play into an MSA, a Medicare set sure. aside? No, rated ages are a great thing uh, for an MSA. So it's an age given based on an individual's medical impairments and the effect they have on life expectancy. So I actually, I pulled up uh, an example from uh, my friend, Kevin Puckett, uh, who does, who's, owns KP Underwriting, which we partner with. And he had a, a great example here to uh, show exactly how this works in practice. So Take a 62-year-old male who has a life expectancy of 21 years, has diabetes, uh, it's orally controlled, and hypertension. So based on his assessment, and, and uh, I should back up, so it, the rate age is either done by an underwriter like uh, Kevin Puckett, um, or you can go through life companies that uh, will provide uh, these rated ages. So a uh, 60-year-old male, life expectancy of 21 years, diabetes, hypertension, decreases life expectancy uh, by four years. So essentially, what that means is the 62-year-old becomes a 67-year-old. You have a lower life expectancy, so 21 uh, years becomes 17 years. So that's good. Not good for him, but good for the MSA because now we're allocating that treatment and medications over 17 versus 21 years. And depending on the, the allocation, that could be a, make a significant difference. You know, for example, with knee replacements uh, or any kind of replacements, I mean, we're really looking out maybe 25 years. So it, depending on a person, you could actually not need to allocate for a revision surgery once that rated age comes in because of that change in life expectancy. So, you know, you could eliminate $30,000, just as a result of the rated age. So, you know, we essentially automatically do rated ages with any uh, referral we receive. And, uh, you know, people like to knock CMS over the head (laughs) over things, but 
them allowing for the rated ages uh, is certainly a benefit to uh, to the process. Yeah, and when I started doing MSAs and workers comp, you know, 20 years ago, process was you would reach out to a life company, they would send you back, you know, anywhere from three to five rated ages. And I know that process has changed for most companies. I would encourage most companies if they're not, if they haven't changed that process, you know, they probably should. And a, kind of a leading question here, but, you know, I know there was a, a practice where you know, CMS will average out those life expectancies. So if you're getting, you know, a spectrum, right, of if somebody median. in their example, the median. Gave, yeah, the median, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So if they're, if you're given the example of, you know, the 62 year old, one says he's 67, the other one says he's standard, which means he's 62, right? Uh, they're going to use a median and then they're using, you know, say there's another one in there that says 63. So you're going to, you're going to be using the median versus if you're using one and a reliable one that CMS has certified the company for, then you're, you know, you're kind of working against yourself, I guess, is the, the tip there. And I, I just encourage yeah. people to, to work with their MSA company on, you know, because you could set that best practice of we want to use, you know, Kevin is a good example or, you know, a, a standard company that, that you're going to get a reliable product for, right? So that's kind of a loaded question on, you know, that process and CMS has made other changes over time on, on rated ages and how they're to be utilized. But, you know, it sounds like you're using Kevin you know, maybe you could speak to how that's changed over time. Um, in terms of the rated ages, you know, I, I think, like you said, with the life companies, they don't necessarily give very favorable <laughs> ratings. So you're going to get a lot better and, and frankly, more accurate rating with using, you know, someone like, like Kevin Puckett on, uh, on getting that rated age um, in the MSA. I, I was just going to make one other quick point, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but I know they, you know, the, I guess the misnomer that I hear back from people when we were talking about MSAs is like, well, that rated age is only good for seven days. I'm like, well, it does. <laughs> that's true. If you need to buy that that uh, annuity from the life company in the next seven days, right? You, you know, just because. So there's, I guess, I'm just trying to disconnect the rated age that a life company is providing for the purchase of their product, which we oh, might right. talk about in a minute, versus a rated age that you're going to submit to CMS. Yeah. No, those are frankly good for up to three years uh, per Medicare's rules. So we essentially, if we come back in a year, we can just add on, I'll let you add on another year uh, to it without having to get a new rated age. That's great. And, and I think, Matt, you're, you're hitting on some of the points. This is why it's such a confusing topic is yeah. there's so many pieces and however each party looks at these pieces is what makes it confusing, I think, especially if you don't have a lot of experience doing this. So the next step, I guess, is, and we talked a little bit about this. I think you've hinted at a few things. You mentioned spinal cord stimulators, making sure treatment, they weren't still in the traumatic phase of treatment that their treatment hadn't stabilized, uh, stabilized out. but when should you consider deciding whether it's worth attempting to settle a claim when they're Medicare eligible? And when should you probably pump the brakes and wait a little while or maybe not try to settle it based on the case facts? What are some of the drivers that when you look at that, these are really going to swing an MSA one way or the other to make that decision whether to move forward right now or maybe yeah. wait? Yeah, I, I think... Uh, you're certainly looking at 
you know, are there medications that perhaps are short term that, because again, like I said, Medicare will just lock those medications in place for the most part of that person's lifetime. So, you know, I know sometimes there's an urgency to settle out the case, but if it's a matter of waiting three, six months to taper off and remove those medications, that's something, you know, if we look at the MSA, we might make that type of recommendation. If it's a matter of person is going to have a surgery in a few weeks, it might be best to let them have that. Um, and uh, But, you know, even something like that, as, as we talk about it, you know, there may be, and that, you know, it's a really a, a business determination there. If that person needs a surgery, you know, would the carrier rather pay for it up front or would they rather just fund that as part of an MSA? You know, you can have a fairly high MSA, but based on your risk assessment, you might say, well, I'd rather just pay that, lump it out, or structure it, uh, which is another thing you can do with the MSA and get that off my books. Um, because of the risk that things could get worse. And, and that's something that really becomes, you know, risk management, how much you want to spend on resolving that claim. But, you know, what we try to do, you know, when we get these these files is, you know, initially make a determination because I, I know, you know, typically they come to us and, and wanting to settle the case. Are there things that we can do uh, to mitigate that um, or to, confirm that the MSA that we develop will be approved by Medicare as is. So we're looking at what that might be. And again, as I referenced earlier about reaching out to the treating physician, clarifying uh, prescription medications. And more often than that, we can successfully do that. But yeah, there's ones that are just trouble. <laughs> and there's not much you can do. person is treating immensely. And those are difficult. I just spoke to an attorney uh, yesterday on a case where a person, she had a um, back injury and, and had gone through physical therapy and a period of medications, but now was uh, just going to a treating physician monthly. And the treating physician was is really doing nothing but giving her work off slip every month. And she's been doing this for two years. So from an MSA perspective, and this one is probably not even going to be submitted to Medicare, but I told the attorney, even where we look at these more aggressively when they're not going to be submitted, it's hard for me to reduce physician visits when the person has has continually gone there monthly for, I think it was, yeah, it was two years ago and uh, two years. I need some clinical or legal basis to reduce that, but I think it was, you know, $53,000 on an MSA. Um, and those those are, are difficult. Uh, we run into situations like that. So we discussed the case, and um, I, I think uh, her option was they're actually going to do surveillance and, and take that back to the treating physician and and see if the treating physician will at least acknowledge that you know, monthly visits or perhaps even less or closing those out is something that's going to work. I know Greg has a final question that he's going to ask, but you know, I, I would just, you know, say in closing is if there's one thing you could tell us about de- demystifying or you know, clarifying anything for anybody out there that's like, wow, they've talked for 30 minutes now and I still am confused by what an MSA does and how to submit it or if I should submit it or the cost drivers. And, you know, we've talked about rated agents. Yeah. I mean, 
this is a complicated subject that obviously could like we started we we could talk about this for days and i could geek out about different things about this for for a long time i I find it very interesting the process is you know very enlightening but if there's one thing you could tell people like to help demystify the whole cloud cloud around msas you know maybe share with that and then i'll throw it back to greg sure um, yeah, I, I think it's, and it gets back to the earlier questions you had, uh, is really just understanding when that Medicare set aside uh, may be appropriate uh, in a case that you're, a claim that you're settling. And from that point, especially if you're newer to the process, and as we talked about it, it can get a bit complicated, is reaching out to whether that's someone you work with who has who specializes uh, or has experience in this. Or working out, or excuse me, reaching out to your MSA partner, you know, Tower, whoever it may be, to provide consultation on this. Um, I, I always joke with people: I'm an attorney that doesn't bill, so you can call me up, email me, and, and which uh, I get all the time, and say, "Here's the scenario I have. Do I need an MSA? How do I reduce cost on this?" But utilize the people. I do it all the time. And when I don't have experience on something, reach out to people that do. And, and you'll learn more, as uh, I'm sure both of you have over the years, and, and get the answers that you need. I, lo- I love that answer. You know, you don't have all the information. You reach out to the experts that do. I mean, clearly, you guys, you know, you do. And I appreciate that. And, um, you know, speaking with you today, Greg, I'll kick it back to you. Thanks. Yeah, I just think, uh, you know, you, you've hit on some important things, and I hope what we've accomplished today through our discussion about this topic that can be a little confusing is, if nothing else, hopefully now there are some triggers in people's minds that I need to ask for some more help if I don't understand this. Because obviously the CMS, when you start thinking about Medicare, they're looking for ways to fund that, and insurance carriers are an easy way to do that if we're not doing what we should be doing. So this stuff's really important. Yeah, it's kind of like trying to uh, fix the plumbing yourself and uh, <laughs> with water shooting out and <laughs> bad things happening. Is That's exactly right. Yeah, just reach out and, and, and ask uh, about what you need to do. You mean, the, you mean the internet doesn't always have all the answers? Yeah. <laughs> uh, YouTube, YouTube, show me how to do it. All right, right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, Dan, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast today. One of the things that I really wanted to focus on this year, this season, to change things up is to put some good vibes out in the universe. And so I'm asking each of the people we interviewed if they could share a memory of a time that you were truly happy and what were you doing and who were you with, Dan? Certainly. That's a great idea. And it's uh, been wonderful talking to both of you today as well. So this is fairly recent, and uh, it's uh, certainly the happiest moment we've had in some time. Our second son was born on December 30th, uh, Charles Patrick, Charlie. So we were, of course, uh, in the delivery room, and he came out, and 10 fingers, 10 toes, <laughs> and screaming at us, uh, and that just uh, just a wonderful moment. Uh, and frankly, he was, he was an unexpected uh, surprise uh, for us. So it was just uh, very wonderful for my wife and I and our family. I totally can relate, Dan. I'm uh, I'm still in the, the sleepless nights with our uh, three and a half <laughs> month old, but, but it really is. I'll tell you, there's nothing better 
then seeing your your child smile, especially with, you know the first the first ones and those first few moments, that's what it's all about. That's why we do what we yep. do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate having time with you today, Dan, and uh, again encourage people to if they have questions, reach out to you. Yeah. On this topic, and I know you'll be happy to help and just remind our audience to do right, think differently, and don't forget to care. And we will hope that you'll join us in future episodes. They're released every two weeks. So until next time, bye everybody. Bye.